The dispute also rose, arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, the kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning. Welcome. Thanks for being here. Uh, my name is Daniel, one of the pastors here. Uh, thankful to be preaching uh, this morning. Um, at my house, we make lists. Um, lists of our favorite basketball players. Uh, lists of the best current players in the league. We make lists of our favorite books. We make lists of our favorite movies. We make lists of the best Marvel movies. And often these lists uh, end in a dispute. Because from person to person in our family, who is on top of those lists differs. Uh, these are fun conversations in the Yoon home. But the really fun ones, the really fun conversations are lists that uh, that include who is better than who among us. Who's better at school? Who's the smartest? Who's the strongest? Who's the fastest? Who is the best at uh, fill in the blank? Who is the least pickiest when it comes to food? And believe it or not, we have a list of who is the best driver in our home. We have a uh, third one who is in the middle of uh, getting her driver's license. And no comments there. <laughs> but the consensus is, for all five of us, is that Daniel Yoon is the best in the Yoon household. <laughs> Just saying. <laughs> well, two through five are the ones in question, and they're the ones who are uh, the most debated. I hate to admit this, but we may be a house that loves to argue. Our text tells us that there arose a dispute, an argument among the disciples of Jesus. The word for dispute in the Greek is phileo nikia. I mean, if you can kind of take those words apart. Phileo, you know, is the word for love, the love of arguing. And the disciples were squabbling over who was the greatest among them. This is not the first time or the only time we see the disciples pose a similar debate in chapter 9 of the book of Luke. Gospel writers, uh, Matthew and Mark, share similar stories about this debate among the disciples 
They love to get into arguments about their relative greatness and which of them was greater. They weren't arguing about actual superiority, but perceived superiority. Who was considered by the crowds, who was considered by the others to be the greatest. For you see, how do you measure greatness? How do you measure something like this? There were no Google polls or accounting of how many likes on their social media posts. So how do you argue and how do you measure greatness? Now, these are fascinating arguments. It's similar to the one my children and I have. This is what I'll say in response to my children when I was in my prime. Or if I had a better knee. (laughs) Or when I was your age. By the way, those never end the argument. It just propels them. How do you prove a me at your age is better than you right now? You can't. But my kids will have to just take my word that I was better than them (laughs) when I was their age. By the way, if you're just joining us, we are nearing the end of our sermon series in the Gospel of Luke. We have spent the better part of seven months in the book of Luke. In a sermon series we called That You May Know. We're near the end. We're finally coming to the the climactic part of this wonderful story that begins uh, next Sunday on Palm Sunday and, of course, culminates with the glorious resurrection of Jesus on Easter Sunday. But in Luke 22, again, as we near the end, the gospel writer tells us that a dispute arose among them as to which of them was regarded as the greatest. If you will, let me give you a little bit of context In the first half of Luke 22, in a Passover meal, Jesus invites his disciples to a memorial to his death, which we call the Lord's Supper. Jesus was was announcing his impending death with with this memorial, but not only this, he reveals that one of his disciples, one of them, one among them would betray him at this memorial supper. It could be that this questioning of who could possibly be the betrayer, the traitor, uh, is uh, degenerates into pride and selfish thinking. And so an argument ensues as to who is the greatest among them. And what's ironic is what Luke reveals about these disciples, what they were most concerned about, and it certainly was not for Jesus' well-being. They were concerned for their own, their own status and place in the kingdom of God. The disciples seemed to think that whoever was the greatest at the time of this account, of this dispute, would be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And it's interesting, I don't think it's by accident that this account follows right afterwards of this dialogue about betrayal, of this dispute among the disciples concerning who was regarded as the greatest immediately following the verse in which we are told The disciples were discussing who it was among them who might betray Jesus. I'm not sure how civil or subtle this debate was. Among many, the struggle for position and power can be 
subtle or very polite or orderly, but I don't think that's what's going on here. They're frank and not so subtle. And this discussion is highly inappropriate for a number of reasons. One, it was the eve of Christ's death on a cross, and they were arguing over who was the greatest in the kingdom. Two, it was inappropriate because they had just broken bread together. It was the Passover meal, the time of the Lord's table ought to be a moment of reflective sobriety, a reminder of what the bread and the wine illustrate, a reminder of our communion with God and our connection to one another, and yet they were arguing over who was the greatest. Three, it was highly inappropriate because there was nothing great about these disciples. If you remember way back at the beginning of Luke, Jesus chose these 12 not based on any merits, but despite it. These disciples were not great. They were not great in the kingdom of, of Rome, and certainly they had no great merits. They were not well-educated. These were not the disciples of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the teachers of that time. But yet, despite the fact that they weren't, they were having this argument about greatness. So in verse 25, Jesus redefines greatness. He said to them in verse 25, the king of the Gentiles lorded over them. They exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. Again, when we Look at our culture, we look at what's happening in this culture of the times of Jesus, we think that greatness is about getting ahead, perhaps getting ahead of everyone else. The one who has the most power, the most prestige, the one who has the most money and the most influence, the people in the world who think of themselves as great, who use their greatness, let others know that they're great, who flaunt their greatness, they do not simply lead, they dominate, they dictate, they lead with force. The world operates on autocratic power. That's how the world operates. It operates by dominance, by dictatorship, by authoritarianism, despotic rulers, lorded over people by threat and force. That is the world's way. There's a pecking order to that system of greatness in our culture. You have a hierarchy. You have somebody at the top who dominates others. They knew this. This is how life was in the ancient world. Somebody is the greatest. Somebody's on top. Somebody has the authority. Somebody dominates. And there are those who are dominated and those are who are on the bottom. And Jesus implies that the way the disciples are thinking and acting is the way the worldly systems work, the way it thinks and acts. Worldly kings and, and worldly leaders exercise their lordship. Worldly people lord it over others. In this culture and in this system, lordship or, or leadership is telling people what to do. Using your authority to make people do things is to lord your power over them. This is what the world does. We experience this at work. We experience this with those who have authority. They simply tell us what to do and we have to comply. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 3, 
The Apostle Peter gave the warning in his letter that shepherds who lead the flock that is among them are not to lord it over them. And let me just pause right here for just a moment and say, my friends, it grieves me from stories I have heard that so many have experienced this kind of trauma in the church. My friends, I'm so saddened to hear the stories and see how often this is how shepherds exercise authority in our churches today. They think that they have the right and the power to tell people what they should do and what they shouldn't do or what they can and cannot do. Preachers think that they have authority to compel people to do something. You see, leadership is not about telling people what to do. We do not lead by an exercise of power and authority the way the world does. Leading is not bossing others around. Leading is not telling people what to do. Leading is not using your authority or our authority to compel people to do something. If this is your experience, I'm so sorry. Jesus says that his followers must not define greatness as the world does. Jesus says and describes these, these in authority as benefactors. This was a title that existed in the Greco-Roman world. The wealthy would use their wealth to give gifts with strings attached. They would do certain things and give gifts with the expectation of things in return, such as service and honor. These are the ones who think all the influence lies with them. All the power lies with them. They are responsible for being the source of everything that happens. Worldly people not only command people to do things, but they will do things for others to put that person into debt so that there is an expectation of return. And Jesus says, this is not how we are to become great. We are not doing good so that they will have to do something for us. We are not to try to force obligations out of people through our wealth. And so in verse 26, Jesus says to his disciples, but not so with you. Jesus says, not so with you. These are not the distinguishing characteristics. These are not the marks of those who belong to the kingdom. The way that the world looks at things is not the same way that the, that the Lord looks at things. You see, according to him, the greatest person is not the person at the top, but the one who takes a position at the bottom, what Jesus calls the youngest. The youngest person in the culture was the last honored, the least honored. Age and honor, just like in Korean culture, went together. If you were the youngest, you were the least honored. And so Jesus says, in my kingdom, greatest is, the greatest is the one who sees himself or herself as the least honored or the least honored among them. But not so with you. And Jesus says, rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. The particular characteristic of Christian leaders or rulers is to be serving. 
And we use that word a lot, especially at Grace Sacramento. We use the word diacono or diaconeo from which we get our English word deacon to serve. To serve at someone's bidding or to serve voluntarily or to give oneself up for the sake of others. It's not that a spiritual leader does not have authority, but that he exercises authority in a different way than the world does. The authority is not established by virtue of office, but by virtue of service. It is not by our title, but by what we do. The difference is profound. One can exercise authority in such a way as to advance himself or herself in his own agenda or her own agenda. And one can exercise authority in such a way to serve and to benefit those whom they are serving. The difference is profound. You may have heard this sermon from me before. This is a, and I will tell you, this is a brand new sermon. I, I wrote it out. But as I was looking through my, my collection of sermons I've preached, I know for sure I have preached this sermon before. <laughs> I preached through Philippians 2 about humility. I preached through Luke chapter 9 about the greatest in the kingdom of God. Those who want to be first among you must be the last. Whoever wants to be great among you must become the least. Out of Luke chapter 9, out of Matthew chapter 18, you know, I mean, there are so many passages in Scripture that talk about humility, and I know for sure I have preached it many times. But for whatever reason, I landed upon this text this morning because I realized that I have as often and as many a times as I have preached this, something, something, uh, hasn't sunk in. And I realize that as many times as I preach that I need to heed, heed my own words that I preach. There's something about pride that wells up. There's something about comparison that wants me to look better than the person next to me. There's something about pride that has a way of creeping into my heart and the strangest of moments, there are so many opportunities for pride to, to creep in. When someone says, uh, you preached a great sermon, <laughs> or you did a great job with, with something. And I realize as I preach this, I need it more than and perhaps even you. There's something about this sermon that we need to hear it over and over and over again. There's something about sermons like this, we need to hear it every week. There are something about passages like this and previous ones where there's the, the ten lepers, and we skip that part of the book of Luke where Ten lepers are healed by Jesus and only one returns because that one is a Samaritan and the one comes back and, and gives praise to God. And again, there's something about sermons like this where we need to cry out, Lord, have mercy on me. Or about a widow who puts in her two mites, her two copper coins, and, and realizes there's nothing about us that 
there's something about um, the great gifts that we've received. We realize that we are the recipients of, of great mercy and great grace that we need to hear over and over again. And let me just tell you real quickly, as we did the homeless outreach yesterday, there's something about being in those positions where you feel like, I must be better than them because I'm the one giving to them. I'm the one feeding them. And there's something about being in those places that has a way of humbling you, that you're no better off than them, that you're just like them, a beggar looking for food, and perhaps you're the one who's found it and telling others where to find food. There's something about the gospel that reminds us of our place. There's something about the gospel that reminds us what we have and what we lack. And there's something about that that reminds us to heed the words of, of Jesus but that's, that, that says, but not so with you. You've earned nothing. There's something troubling about these sermons. And again, I know there are difficult sermons to preach. I, I, I know it. There are 66 books of the Bible that are so difficult to preach. And I will tell you that there are others that are more difficult than others and has nothing to do with the, the complexities of the theology. Because when you read through the complex parts of Scripture, it's easy to pick up a commentary or some great theologian and, and unpack the... The, the difficulties of, of those places in Scripture, those are not the hard ones to preach, but it's ones like this that stares us in the face and says, but not so with you. Not so with you. For whoever wants to be great among you must become the least. For the one who wants to be a leader must be one who serves. These are the troubling things with Sermons like this that are so hard to master because once we think we've mastered humility, <laughs> we're at ground zero. <laughs> the disciples were not to pattern their lives after the world, but rather after their master. Listen to the question that Jesus asks in verse 27. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? It depends on how you look at it. Jesus answers the question the same way we would answer it. We would all say that the one who sits at the table, the one who reclines at table, is the one who is greater, not the one who serves. Because Jesus says, is it not the one who reclines at table? But Jesus turns that thinking upside down as he goes on to say, But I am. I am among you as the one who serves. This to me is the most profound part of this short section. He says, who's greater, the one who reclines or the one who serves? And instead of giving an answer, the traditional way, the one who's greater is the one who reclines at table, or the one who's greater is the one who serves, he says, no. I'm the one among you as the one who serves. 
The way the world looks at things is not the way that God looks at things. Jesus is the picture of true greatness. What Jesus came to do, he came to serve. Jesus is the one who is serving. Jesus is our model for true greatness. Look at the text with me just for for a second. The word great or greater or greatest is mentioned three times. Three times. Let me just take a look here real quick. I haven't memorized it. A dispute arose among them as to which of them was to be regarded as the greatest. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? The one who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table, but I am among you as one who serves? Three times Jesus in some way or form asks the question as to who is greater or great or greater or greatest in the kingdom. And look at the way that Jesus answers. He uses the word diakoneo to serve three times. Three times. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at table or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? And emphatically, he says, but I am among you as the one who serves. The disciples' preoccupation and debate over their own position and prestige and power was inappropriate for several reasons. And those Jesus had mentioned thus far, he says, that's the way the world behaves. Number two, it's the opposite of the way that Jesus manifested himself, even though he was the greatest of all. And the preoccupation with greatness is untimely for that which the disciples were seeking not, uh, will not come in this life, but in the next life to come. This is not the way we usually think of the powerful politicians, but it is the kind of unexpected service that Jesus calls us to if we would be great in the kingdom of heaven. My friends, if you have some authority in the workplace, in the church, in the city, in your community, if you have some level of authority, we are not to abuse, but to use it to serve others. My friends, if you have some prominent title, we understand that Jesus had the greatest title. He was a servant of all. And he calls us to the same. As I finish here, Jesus is gracious in the way he deals with his disciples. They were disputing who was the greatest among them. And yet Jesus, in his gracious way, answers his disciples. In verse 28, 
You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you as my Father assigned to me a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Yes, the disciples had been with Jesus through trials and, and difficulties. And it says here, Jesus is going to assign to them a kingdom. They are going to share in Christ's kingdom, eating and drinking at his table in his kingdom, sitting on thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. What a beautiful, beautiful picture that you would eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, sitting on thrones. And it's this picture that Jesus is saying, greatness is what I attribute to you for your association with me. That we would, in this next life, that we'll sit on thrones and we'll sit with him eating and, and drinking and we'll share and partake of this glorious feast because of what Jesus Christ has done in his suffering and in his service, in his humility and his servanthood. 